Hi, I'm Reverend Wendy Craig Purcell here at the Unity Center in San Diego. Thank you so much for watching today. If you'd like to support the work that we do here, please consider making a contribution. Go to our website. It's easy to do. Thank you in advance for that contribution. I don't imagine there are many, if there are any of us, who would say dealing with conflict is a pleasant and easy thing to do. It's not. In fact, I think that many of us would prefer to just never have it happen, right? So that we just don't ever have to deal with it. And yet, that's not realistic. No matter who we are, we're going to experience conflict at various times in our lives. I suspect that's true unless we live by ourselves with no one around us at all. And then we probably have some internal conflicts going on with ourselves. Conflict. It's, it's a fact of life because we don't see things the same way. We don't view things from the same viewing point, and therefore we may very well not have the same viewpoint as a result of that. Dealing with conflict, just not comfortable, just not easy, and yet it is very much a fact of life. Just yesterday, my daughter was facilitating a small group a support group that she leads for people who have a learning challenge called nonverbal learning disability or nonverbal learning disorder. And she's been leading this support group for a while and has had some really positive impact on the people who are attending. And while there are agreements that each of the members who come into the group understand about confidentiality and speaking with kindness and all of the kinds of agreements that make for good, safe places for people to talk about tough things, there was an individual who um, disrupted the group yesterday. And in his behavior unaware of how his actions were affecting the others, there was a great deal of upset and conflict that happened. And a couple of people felt that they needed to leave the group for a while and just take a few breaths and be able to, to process. And Jennifer and I were talking about that after the fact some, about how conflict is never pleasant. It's never easy. And, and yet, it is very much a fact of life. We and it, because it is, we need to learn how to deal with it. And sometimes with conflict, what winds up happening is that people shut down because they just don't want to deal with it or they avoid it. Or another way, that, uh, unskillful way that people deal with conflict is to minimize it. Oh, it's really not that bad. When in fact, maybe it was that bad. Or we deal with conflict by lashing out and, and perhaps even in extreme cases, taking that to wanting to, to go for revenge. So conflict and the way we deal with conflict impacts our personal lives and impacts our professional lives. And I'd say that the way that we handle conflict is very revelatory. It really reveals something about where we are as people and individuals in our emotional and spiritual maturity. I was thinking more about the importance of dealing with conflict and was thinking about, well, what are some of the factors that get in our way 
of our ability to be more successful in dealing with this very real phenomenon that's going to happen to and around even the kindest and best of people. And here are three things that I think get in the way of our ability to deal successfully with conflict. Number one, we don't know how. We simply don't know how to do it. We lack the skill. We lack the ability. When one of our members saw the, the um, email that came out and gave this week's title, she responded to us and said, you know, maybe Wendy would, would mention that there's a whole organization called the Na National Conflict Resolution Center that actually offers some free programs, some free educational resources to help people become more skillful in dealing with conflict. So one of the factors that keeps us from doing it successfully is simply we don't know how. And the truth of the matter may be that some of us grew up in environments where we learned all the things that don't work. And we saw and experienced all the things that don't work, but never really got to see how conflict is handled. And it's not handled by sweeping it under the rug. It's handled in ways I'm going to talk to you about in just a moment. So we don't know how, and so we lack the skill. Another factor is sometimes I think we'd rather not bother. And here is a lack of willingness, and I think a lack of emotional maturity. Conflict is messy, whether it's personal conflict or professional conflict, or we can scale that up to national conflict, but we're going to keep it more personal today. We'd rather not bother. It's messy, and we may not have the willingness or the emotional maturity to, to deal with it, or we don't want to take the time. Have you ever noticed that conflict doesn't usually happen in neatly scheduled blocks of time where you can say, okay, Tuesday morning from 9 to 10 is a time that I will deal with conflict. It doesn't happen like that, does it? It just kind of erupts, and then we're left with the, what do I do now? And how do I handle this best? And the third, I think, is that we, have, we may have real issues with being wrong. Because if we're going to have an honest conflict or honest conversation and try to address whatever issue has happened that has caused the conflict, we may have to admit that we have a part in it, or a lot more than a part in it. We may need to admit, you know, I was wrong. And some people have real challenges with their ego and find it really, really hard to admit they're part of something or to say, you know what, I mishandled that. Or I, I was wrong here. I made a big mistake and I'm sorry. Um, it takes a big person to be able to do that. And so those are just some factors, I think. We don't know how, we'd rather not bother, or we have real issues with being wrong as reasons that we don't deal successfully with conflict. But the less willing we are to truly try to understand the other, the more likely we're going to be in conflict with them. There's a direct relationship between a willingness to understand and the ability to deal more effectively with conflict and to actually have fewer conflicts to begin with. In one of the readings that I began with earlier today, I shared the thought from Tom Crum, where he speaks to this idea of the difference between a viewpoint and a viewing point. 
And I think that's a brilliant observation. If, when we think of a viewpoint, it's, it's often an opinion. It is how we see something, what we believe about something. And we, many times we can dig our heels in pretty firm and hard with our viewpoint. And he suggests that part of dealing more effectively with conflict is being willing to move away from our viewpoint and change our viewing point and when we change our viewing point, we will likely see something different than we saw before. And it could be that we wind up going back to what we really think is more reasonable or more right, but at least we will have given the other, the benefit, and ourselves, the benefit of the doubt of seeing whatever it is from another person's point of view, from another viewing point. So this series that, that we have embarked on a few weeks ago is a series of looking at practical issues like this one, but looking at them through spiritual eyes and specifically going back to some of the teachings of Jesus, our teacher and way shower, with regard to how do we deal with life. I think that when we really read the Gospels, and we really seek to try to understand not the religion about Jesus, but the ideas that he conveyed, we can't help but recognize the wisdom in them, the practicality of them, and the efficacy of them for stuff you and I deal with today. So here are some things that I know have been attributed, at least, to, to Jesus, recorded supposedly in the Gospels as his words, of um, ideas that can help us deal with conflict. So the first, I would summarize his words, which I'll share in a moment. I would summarize them as saying, number one, we've got to keep it clean and go direct. So if you're taking notes, write down, keep it clean and go direct. Keep it clean and go direct. In Matthew 5.23, it's recorded that he said this, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then, come and offer your gift. So picture this. He's talking to a group of very religious people, and he's saying to them, if you are in the temple, if you're in the synagogue, ready to present your gift, your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, stop what you're doing. And this was an obligation, what they were doing, but he's saying, stop what you're doing. Stop that and go deal with the other. He's speaking of the importance that keeping those relationships clear and clean by going direct and dealing with it is even more important than fulfilling the mosaic religious law of obligation that you've been told. Some of us, I think, would agree that depending upon what it would take to go deal directly with our brother, we'd rather give our gift at the altar. That's an easier thing to do in many ways, isn't it? Than to really deal with the nitty gritty of the ick, and I love that word, the ick that happens in our relationships. But what do we do instead? Oftentimes what we do instead is we don't go direct, we go sideways. That can look like the conversation that happens after the meeting, the real meeting, 
that happens after the meeting at the water cooler or the coffee machine or out in the parking lot. We don't go direct, we go sideways. That's called triangulation. We talk about it, whatever it is, a conflict we have with another, instead of going directly to that person and saying, I misunderstood what you said, or I'm really offended by what you said, or the comment you made made me feel like you, you don't value me or, or my whole race, whatever the, the thing may be. Instead of going direct, we go vent to somebody else and sometimes doing that in such a way that we somehow hope that person would go back to the other and do the dirty work for us or do the, the, the tough conversation for us. But Jesus is telling us very clearly, very clearly, when you know that there's something going on between you and another, stop what you're doing, recognize the importance of going directly to that person and doing your very best to clean it up. You may not be successful, it doesn't. None of this says the other person's going to act in a responsible way or an open way or a loving way. They may be unwilling to hear. They may be unwilling to participate. But that is not to excuse our part of what we need to do. We need to go direct. We need to do what we can to keep our side, our part of the relationship as clear and clean and honest as we possibly can. I am always 100% responsible for my 50% of a relationship. 100% responsible for my part of the relationship as you are. 100% responsible for your part of the relationship. Another, another elsewhere, Jesus talked about something where I would say the essence of it is this, settle matters quickly. Settle matters quickly. In Matthew 5, 25, he says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now you might be thinking, well, okay, he's talking about really serious matters here that would require somebody going to court. My conflicts that I have in my work life or my personal life aren't really that big. So this, this thing that Jesus is talking about doesn't really apply to me, but it does. I was reminded of one of the Bible scholars I had the privilege of learning from in seminary. His name was George Lamsa. He was fluent in the Aramaic language, the language that Jesus spoke. He um, was a Middle Easterner himself, and he read and understood and interpreted the Bible from a cultural point of view, sharing some of the context with which when Jesus said things like this, the people who he was speaking to would have understood it in ways that are different than you and I understand it if we don't have the context. So I want to read the con some of the context to you. This is from a book called Gospel Light by George Lamsa. He says, in olden days, in olden times, prophets and men of God were the arbiters, peacemakers, and judges who looked after political and spiritual welfare of the people. 
Even today in many countries of the East, the disputants journey for two, three, or more days in search of justice. In many instances, the parties concerned travel together, stop at the same inn, eat and converse during the journey. They have fought or perhaps wounded each other, but on the long journey to the place of justice, they have to be friendly. They might, get ban they might meet bandits on the road who could rob and kill them. They have to protect and fight for each other. Often on the weary and tiresome journey, their troubles and differences are forgotten. Friendly conversations take the place of hatred. Gracious words are spoken instead of cursing. He's writing specifically about the context of this passage that Jesus was giving. He goes on to write, Thus, while on the road to the judge, men who have been enemies for months suddenly become friends. They talk over their differences and suggest remedies. If, however, neither of the two men on such a journey was willing to yield a point, both would have to face the judge and experience many discomforts. Oriental judges generally have few cases during the year, and as their support is derived from complainants, they are like spiders patiently waiting for victims to fall in their web. A trifling affair, here's where it gets more personal and real, a trifling affair is made into a big case requiring months and years to settle. In the East, justice is often executed not according to guilt, but by wealth. This is sounding very familiar for today, isn't it? If both the disputants are poor, the case is promptly dismissed with a few rebukes, but if they happen to have money or other wealth, the case may never be settled until the last cent is gone and the property is sold. So when Jesus is saying this point to his followers, his students, to settle matters quickly with your adversary, he's saying, if you don't deal with it and you just let it go on, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. I know some of us, maybe in my generation and even a little older, we many of us were brought up in a culture that said conflict is to be avoided and we just don't talk about things that are difficult. We don't really deal directly with conflict. We just kind of make nice nice. We, we sweep it under, under the rug. That is so unhealthy. It is so incomplete. It never deals with the real issue. And I'm sure you know this to be true as I do. When we don't deal with issues, they just become worse. Like a wound that is not cleaned and tended to, it becomes infected and it becomes painful and it takes longer to heal the longer we avoid dealing with it. So he tells us the way to deal with conflict is to settle matters quickly. Settle matters quickly. A third suggestion he gives has to do with this idea of do speak your peace, <clears throat> do share your ideas, but don't force your way. In Mark 6.11 he says, and if anyone will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave. These were instructions that he was giving to his disciples, his followers, when he sent them out two by two, not alone, two by two so they could support each other. He sent them out to share his teaching, his ideas of consciousness, his ideas of spiritual practice, if you will. 
And he says, you know, go out and share. But if you're not welcomed, if, if they don't get you, if they don't agree with you, if they have a very different viewing point than you do, don't dig your feet in. Don't, don't cause a fight. Shake the dust off your feet and leave. In other words, don't take the ick with you. Do what you can do, what you in your heart and soul and spirit feel is right and is helpful, but then leave. Then go and move on. So it's not that we can't say in, in dealing with conflicts that arise personally or professionally, it's important that both individuals or both parties get to discuss and and identify what it is that didn't work for them or what they're feeling or what went wrong and why they think it went wrong, to listen respectfully. Can you imagine the kind of world we would be co-creating if we agreed to do these things? Can you imagine the family dynamics that we would create? Can you imagine the young people that we would raise that would be so much more emotionally mature and, and spiritually mature to be able to deal with the very complex issues that we have in the world? And I think they're only going to get more complex as we have greater and greater diversity, which is wonderful and enriches the tapestry of life, it means that we're going to have that many more points of view and viewing points. So our mental elasticity, our mental malleability to, to stretch and to see things from different points of view and be willing to be influenced by those different points of view will help us to create healthier families, more functioning communities, and a safer and more pleasant world for all of us. And the last, I would say, is in this idea of dealing with conflict. Jesus, not so much in, well, I guess in words, but certainly an example, stood for giving people the benefit of the doubt and a second chance, and a second chance. Think of the message that I shared with you last week. One of the stories I shared was about the woman caught in adultery and the, um, the scribes and Pharisees wanted to trick uh, Jesus with the Mosaic law saying, you know what the law of Moses says, that a woman caught in adultery is to be publicly stoned to death. They challenge him to try to trick him. What do you say, Jesus? And eventually when he does respond, he says, let you who are without sin cast the first stone. And then it gets very quiet. Everybody leaves and it's just Jesus and, and the woman. And in his parting conversation with her, one of the things he says to her is go and sin no more. And sin doesn't mean what many of us think it means. It comes from an archery term that means to miss the mark. And so he was saying to her, in essence, your behaviors, your actions, you've missed the mark on some things, some things that probably will cause you greater pain in your life. Can you go forward from this point and aim a little bit better? Can you go forward from this point and not repeat those mistakes? And he says, and neither do I condemn thee when he sends her off. Nobody condemned her, and he says to her, neither do I condemn thee. Go. And so he was giving her a second chance. In our families, I think it's important that we do that with each other. In our communities, to give people a second 
chance, give them the opportunity to show up better. There is a story of, of um, out of a tribe in South Africa, the Bambiba Bimba tribe in South Africa, that has a practice that we could learn from about this idea of giving people a second chance. When some a member of that tribe commits an offense or acts irresponsibly or unjustly, the member is brought back to the community and is placed in the center of the community. And the community members gather around that individual that has acted in an irresponsible or unseemly or unjust way. And do you know what they do? They don't criticize that person. Every single one of them starts speaking to that person and reminding that person of all the good things they have ever done in their life. And because it's a very communal um, environment and the relationships are very close, it's easy for the community members to speak to and to remind this individual who's just done something wrong that that's not all of who they are. They remind that person of all the good things that they have done. And when they have finally exhausted their list and their memories are emptied of all the things that good things that that person has done, then they have a celebration. Can you imagine if we could even move slightly in that direction? Our daughter had the privilege of studying abroad in Norway in her one of her last years of, of college. And she studied some of the sociology and some of the cultures of Norway while she was there. And she has told us so many stories that she learned about just how their criminal justice system works, for example. And it reminds me a little bit of the story that I just shared with you and very much of Jesus' practice of give people a second chance. Could we make a commitment instead of reminding people of their faults and mistakes and shortcomings? Could we work a little bit harder to remember and remind one another of all the good things about one another? Namaste. Namaste.